Alright, let's uh, let's get into God's word. If you brought a Bible, now would be a great time to get it out or turn it on. If you'd like to borrow one of our Bibles, we always have little boxes in the aisles here. I think they're beginning to dwindle, which I don't know, is it a good thing that our Bibles are like going away? <laughs> Stealing church Bibles. They do what you gotta do. Um, as long as they're getting read. Oh, and by the way, did anyone start? The, the Bible in the year, read a scripture plan. Yes, that encourages me to no end. Um, guys, as I, I just I have to do this. Gabe, you did a great job, but I, I've got to add to it a little bit. Um, part of the vision of us utilizing this Read Scripture app is that as a church community, we want to read through the entire Bible together. Um, so that, that's the idea of the app. There's a lot of great apps out there. Obviously, I think this is probably one of the best ones I've ever come across. Um, it's sort of like a Francis Chan meets the Bible project kind of thing. Really, really good stuff. Um, but as we go through the year, we, we're doing it together. And that, that's what the app will help us do. We can synchronize together. And as Gabe mentioned, Grace City Corvallis and Eugene, we're all kind of doing it together. If you didn't start, if you're only hearing about it now, Go onto the website, gracecityportland.org. The, the link's right there, super obvious. And then when you, when you begin the plan, just start it on October 1st. So that was like our official start date. So then you can catch up if you want, whatever. But at least that way we know we're all sort of synced and we're, we're on this journey together. So there you go, check it out. Okay, um, guys, we are, I think, about halfway through a, a teaching series that we've entitled, I Am Slash We Are. It's a bit of a funky title, but the idea is simply this. Uh, in life, we, we're all seeking well-being. We, we want to be happy. We want to be functional. We want to be me mentally uh, sound. We want to be emotionally, physically healthy, all of these things. And a huge part, I would argue... Perhaps the primary part of, of, of human well-being and flourishing has to do with our identity. We spend a good portion, if not our entire lives, trying to figure out, who am I? What, what am I all about? How am I supposed to be viewing myself and the world and God and, and getting through life? And, and we can expend a massive amount of energy trying to answer that question, who am I? The good news is that when we look to God in Christ, as he's been revealed to us in the scriptures, we find a God who's not only revealing himself to us, but he's revealing to us who we are in light of who he is and all that he's done. When we look to Jesus, we see the revelation of God, and it's there that we discover who we are as well. And we've been quoting this verse, or I have anyways, for the last few weeks. I believe it's 1 John 4, 6. It says, as he is, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. We're meant to identify with God and each other and see ourselves like Jesus who God is in Christ is who we're meant to be as we figure out life in this world. So that's the big idea. I hope that makes sense. Um, as we've been working through that week one, I sort of, I, I attempted to lay a, sort of a foundation 
build a case for why theologically that's all true and how God himself actually, when we come to him, he clothes us and he, he helps us discover who we are. He deals with our insecurities and our shame and our confusion. He says, come to me. I will clothe you in Jesus and I will tell you who you are, who you're meant to be, and I will empower you to live out that life like Jesus. So from there we talked about how Jesus was the quintessential spirit-filled human. And now for us to even begin to experience our identity as children of God, it means that we're simply, we're going beyond merely thinking thoughts about identity. We're going beyond even merely feeling feelings about identity. We are encountering a God who supernaturally transforms us. He fills us with his spirit and he begins to rearrange something on the inside of us that's utterly fundamental. And that's the beginning of how we experience a new identity in Jesus, okay? Then from there we talked about holiness. God is holy. He said, I am holy, therefore you be holy. And we talked about what does that mean? What are the, what are the ramifications of being holy like God? Then we talked about being, you remember last week? Generous. One of the fundamental character attributes, one of the, the identity ingredients of God in Christ is the generosity of God. That was last week, and then this week we're gonna talk about, well, we'll get there in a sec. Let's turn to 1 John chapter three, starting in verse 11. And I think this one will be on the screen. Here we go. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, Old Testament, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister like Cain is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Let's pause there. This is how we know what love is. Now, the first few verses, John's, he's a mystic. Okay, the, the writer of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and I would argue even the revelation of John, the last book of the Bible, this, this guy was he, was, he was out there. I mean, he was like tapping into heaven. He was absolutely a mystic and a bit of a poet, I, I, would, I reckon. So he's saying all this stuff, and he, there's a lot of obscure Old Testament references. He's talking about murder. He's talking about Cain. He's talking about being hated. And he's talking a whole lot about love. And that how when we cross over from life into death, God's love begins to do something in us. And then he explains. He says, and this is how we know what love is. Next slide, please. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John defines love in two ways. Number one, God's love is costly. It is a sacrificial kind of love. It's a love that compelled him to lay his life down. And number two, God's love takes responsibility. He suffered and died for us. It's costly, that is, it's sacrificial, and God's love is the kind of love that takes responsibility, because he didn't just do something for the universe. He laid down his life for us. As Paul puts it in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is what compels him at great personal cost to himself to take responsibility for us. This is fundamental to the identity of God as he's revealed himself in Jesus. This is who God is, therefore, therefore, this is who we are. We are responsible. We are responsible. Can we go to the next slide and and finish the, the section here? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And he qualifies that, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. What he's saying, let's not just talk about it, let's not just theorize about it, let's not just idealize, let's not just promote our ideologies about it, let's live it, let's do it, let's put it into action, let's take responsibility. And therefore, uh, today's topic is, we can go to the title slide, please, I am, we are responsible. One of the fundamental attributes of God's identity as he's revealed himself to us in Jesus is that he's a God who takes responsibility. He didn't just die, he died for us. And therefore, in Jesus, when we consider who am I, I am responsible. Who are we as his children? We're responsible. We are responsible. So let's talk about responsibility. Who's excited to talk about responsibility? Ken, yes. All right. Four points. This is a four-point sermon, guys. Let's go to the next slide, please. Number one. Created to take responsibility. We were created to take responsibility. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
or rule over it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We, we talk about the Great Commission. This is the original commission. We were created in God's image to take responsibility like him. This, this was like the original game plan. That we were to live in communion, in, in unity, with God and with others, and in the process, take responsibility for God's creation. To, to rule over God's good creation, to steward the world and every living creature in it. To take responsibility, it's what we were created for, it's at least in part. I wouldn't say it's our primary purpose in life, but there it is in the beginning. We were created to take responsibility. Number two, we have a problem with taking responsibility. Because in Genesis chapter three, and this is where we began a few weeks ago, you remember the, the quote unquote fall, where the man and the woman, they were created and they were put in this garden to enjoy uh, what we call fellowship with their creator and with each other, only they were tempted to usurp the very good authority of our God, of their creator, um, and it went terribly bad for them. They, they discovered very, very quickly that for them to attempt to usurp the authority of God, and in essence, like, be their own gods, created extreme anxiety. All of a sudden, they realized they were naked, they were full of shame, they were insecure, their identity was fractured. And so, as the story goes, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, God went to his, his creation, the man and the woman, he began with the man, he says, where are you? And he was hiding, he was afraid, and, uh, and he said, who told you you were naked? Remember that one? Who told you you were naked? And what does the man say? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. It's classic. Blame shift. Instead of taking responsibility, and God, I don't want to get into like, like weird theology land, but I would argue that he had a chance. There was like a moment when God was, was, was calling him to confess he could have repented. And God only knows like what, what, I mean, what were the implications would have been. But he doesn't. He shifts the blame. Instead of taking responsibility, he blames, he, he's not just blaming the woman, he's actually blaming God. He doesn't take responsibility at all. He says, like, well, you, the woman that <coughs> you gave me tempted me, and there you go. And of course, Eve doesn't do a whole lot better. The woman, she does a little better. Um, in Genesis 3.13, she said that the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she blames the mysterious serpent. In Genesis 4.9, so they're expelled from the garden. It all goes terribly bad for them. And God says, look, it's, this has is, this is set you on a crash course for death. And so he expels them from the garden. And then they have a family, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. As we just read in 1 John, Cain was the original murderer. And he decided because God accepted his brother's sacrifice, 
and we're not told why, it's really bizarre, but God accepts Abel's sacrifice, rejects Cain. Cain is like overcome with resentment. He's bitter. And God says, look, you have a choice to make. You have a choice. You can, you can learn to rule over your own heart and overcome this sin that is now growing inside of you or not. But you've got to make the choice. We're told Cain decides to kill his brother. Here's the interesting thing, though. In Genesis 4, 9, the Lord comes to Cain after the murder, and he says, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain replies and says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, yes, you absolutely are. You are responsible for your little brother. McCain doesn't think so. We have a problem with taking responsibility. Even when we're not at fault, we have a problem with taking responsibility. We would rather argue over who's to blame rather than to simply roll up our sleeves and take responsibility. This is, this is the game I play with my kids virtually every day. I come home, the house is a tip. It's not my wife's fault, it's the kids. It's the kids. It's like they're just out to destroy everything in my world. And they just, I'm sorry, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. <laughs> not my wife. It's the little rugrats. And so I walk in. It doesn't matter who it is. I'm like, Isaac, hey, would you mind cleaning up the living room? What do you, what do you suppose the first thing out of his mouth is? I didn't do it. I didn't, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, boy, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. This is your family as much as it is mine. Can you please just, just what I'm asking him to do is to take responsibility for the home and for our family and, and roll up his sleeves and get to work. But for him, it immediately becomes, it's like he'd rather argue about who's to blame instead of just taking responsibility. I had a very wise pastor one time um, give me some advice. This, this was at a time in my life where I found myself in the middle of like a really messy situation. Not a messy living room, but like life had just kind of like hit the fan. And um, I remember he said, he said this to me. He said, there's three types of animals in the zoo. He said, the first type is like the, the smug tourist who's walking around looking at the animals and criticizing how messy some of the cages are. Um, the other animal is, it's the monkey. Instead of criticizing the mess, likes to pick it up and fling it at the tourists. And then there's the third animal in the zoo, and that's the zookeeper. That's the one who looks at the mess and goes and picks up a shovel and begins to clean it up. He's the one who takes responsibility for the mess. Whether, he, whether it's his to clean up or not, he takes responsibility. And it really spoke to me. Only he didn't say mess. He used like other choice expletives. And I remember thinking like, wow, you're such an edgy pastor. <laughs> Using expletives in a discipleship moment.
Um, it is hard. We, we do have a problem with taking responsibility. Number three, God assumes ultimate responsibility for creation, but we still have been entrusted with real responsibility. Okay. Ultimately, and just bear with me for a moment, because I'm going to try to connect some dots. Ultimately, God has taken responsibility for creation. Okay. He is the zookeeper, and we are the monkeys. And God takes responsibility for creation. But we have still been entrusted with real responsibility. Flip open to Matthew chapter 25. I don't think this one's on the screen. Oh, here it is. This, there's um, quite a few parables that Jesus tells that you don't ever, ever, ever hear like preached on a Sunday morning because just no one really wants to hear them. This is one of those. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is known as the parable of the talents. He's talking to some of his disciples. He's talking to people who have begun to follow him. And he's, he's nearing the end of his life and ministry. He's going to be crucified. He begins to foretell it, his death and resurrection. And then he begins to talk about like the end of days. What will it look like when he returns after having conquered death, when he returns and ultimately establishes his kingdom, which he's about to inaugurate upon his resurrection? What will it look like at the end times. And he tells a series of parables. Here's one of them, the parable of the talents. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, that's a quantity of money, currency, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He, had received, he who had received the five talents uh, went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents, he did the same thing. He traded uh, the two of them, made two more. But it says that the one who had received the single talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Um, chapter 25, verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's beautiful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. He does the same thing with the one who had been entrusted with two talents. He goes to his master and he says, I've, here's the two talents, I've earned two more, here you go. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, here's where it goes bad. Verse 24, um, it says, he also had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid 
And I went and I hid your talents in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's heavy. Note, the master doesn't expect his servants to do anything that's beyond their ability. He said he entrusted to them talents according to their ability. So this is a bit of a side point, but this is very, very important. We're talking about responsibility. Some of us have this like responsibility streak in your personality, and you feel compelled to take responsibility for everything and everyone, and it, it wrecks you. It's, it's not a good thing. And I don't want you to go away here thinking like responsibility on overdrive. And you just, all of a sudden, it's like you're killing yourself to take responsibility for things that are well beyond your ability, things that God did not entrust to you to be responsible for. Is that, is that clear? That's super important. But God does entrust us with quote-unquote talents. It could be money. It could be actual talents. It could be, it's, it's our life. And he, he expects us to to give him a good return on his investment. When Jesus returns, he's gonna come to us and say, okay, what did you do with what I gave you? I am holding you responsible. And he expects that we would have invested everything that he would have given us, that we would have utilized every opportunity that he entrusted to us. He will hold us responsible. And if we squander those responsibilities, the end is not happy. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to make comments and like, what, like what, are, what are the implications? Like, what are we talking here? Like, is that, is that hell? Let's let the text just speak for itself. Whatever it is, however we're meant to understand it, I would emphasize that we are responsible for the lives that, that Jesus has entrusted to us. And that's, that's a weighty matter. It's a real responsibility. Something to, to think about. Challenging. Now at this point, you might be thinking, but how can God hold me responsible for a life that I never asked for? How about that one? How can God hold me responsible when I've heard that he is the sovereign king? Isn't he the one who, who created everything, including me? Gave me life, gave me a personality, made me the way I am, gave me the family I got stuck with? And yet he's going to hold me responsible you ever, ever wonder that? 
Ever had that conversation with yourself or a friend? How can God hold someone responsible for a life they never asked for? I would say wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's an okay question, but it's a question you're probably not gonna find a very satisfying answer for in the story. It's the wrong question. It's, it's not the question that the text is compelling us to ask. The question should be, now that we're in this life, what can I do with what God has given me? What can I do so that God's goodness might be put on display given the life that I've been allotted? John chapter nine, verse two. Jesus' disciples come to him. Um, Jesus is about to heal a man who was born blind, congenital. Born blind, born that way, born blind. And his disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which is a really weird question. It gets to the heart of of the the problem. Who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents, which kind of makes sense. You think, okay, they must have done something really bad. God got mad at them, and like this is like now the result. Or did he sin? Which is like, okay, just think about what you're asking. Like, like what, he sinned like in a previous life? Is that, is that what they're going? That doesn't sound super Jewish. He sinned in the womb, thought bad thoughts in the womb. Who sinned? The parents or the man that he was born blind and Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents said Jesus, but this happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying, wrong question. Wrong question. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even answer the question. The real question is, however you got to where you're at, whether you asked for it or not, whether you're privileged or not, the real question is, how can you live your life in such a way that puts the goodness of God on display? That's the question. That's the question we need to ask. Okay, so that's all pretty heavy. Let's go to our fourth point. What's the good news? The good news is we have been redeemed to take responsibility. We weren't just created to take responsibility. We don't just have a problem with it. And we're not just stuck with it. We have been redeemed to take Responsibility. God has taken responsibility. The offspring of the woman, this is Genesis chapter three, the offspring of the woman, the holy seed has crushed the heel of the serpent. God in Christ has defeated sin and death. Our king has taken responsibility. Therefore, In Christ, you have been given a new heart and a new mind. In Christ, we are responsible. That is, we are able to respond like he would. Like Jesus, you may have been lied to, abused, 
betrayed, beaten, abandoned, spit on, left out, misunderstood, and victimized in every other way that we could list off. But in Jesus Christ, you are not a victim. You're not a victim. You are a son or a daughter of the king. You belong to the master of redemption, the one who gives us the the ability to respond in the opposite spirit so that we will not be overcome by evil, but that we might overcome evil by doing good, by picking up a shovel and doing good. When facing brokenness, temptation, evil, even our own propensity towards sin, selfishness, bitterness, lust, hatred, you may fall more than once, but you will keep getting back up because the greater one lives inside of you and the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead will empower you to rise back up. The same Holy Spirit that conquered sin and death in Jesus is the same Holy Spirit who lives in the son or daughter of God who gives us the ability to respond in the opposite spirit. We are not victims. We are heirs of the king. We are overcomers. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who strengthens us. We are not victims. We are royal children. We have been empowered with the ability to respond like Christ. We are responsible. Therefore, therefore we are responsible to resist sin. We are responsible to stand up for those who are being sinned against. We are responsible to serve those who our world has deemed worthless or simply not worth the effort. We are responsible to speak up for the voiceless, to defend the defenseless. We are responsible to pray. We are responsible to pray, especially for those who can't or simply refuse to pray for themselves. We are responsible to speak up when lies are being promulgated, when gossip is running rampant, when our Savior is being slandered. We are responsible to bear with difficult people, with those who are so hurt and frustrated that every time they open their mouths, it just comes out angry and defensive. We are responsible to give an answer when asked to explain the hope within us. We are responsible to live and to love in such a way that people might be provoked to ask us about the hope within us in the first place. We are responsible for the well-being of our brothers and sisters to notice the guy or the girl who feels invisible. We are responsible for the well-being of our church. For the next generation, for the future of our children, we are responsible for the harmony of our fellowship, and we are responsible for the mission that Jesus has called us to be a part of. We are a responsible family. 
the children, let us not just love or take responsibility in word. Let us take responsibility with our actions, with our lives, in real life terms. Are you with me?